introductory um, note that you might find uh, offensive to your intellect. But, you know, this last week I was, I was uh, reflecting on gravity, you know, something simple, something we walk in every day, but not something we often think about. And it occurred to me that, that um, gravity is just one of those things that we take for granted, but we don't recognize how universal, inescapable, and absolute it is. You know, I have, I have this pen in my hand, and, and again, excuse me for the, for the stupidity of this opening, but I find that oftentimes I, I, I understand the scripture better when there's an analogy that helps my brain work. But, you know, if I, if I let go of this pen with my two fingers and there's no wind or anything, which way is it going to go? Right? It's, it's not going to go up. It's not going to go side to side unless there's a, a big wind. It's, it is going to always go down. It will always drop. And we can test that this morning, you know, just, hey, look, it dropped. That's amazing, isn't it? Like, it's not amazing to you because you expect that to happen because it always happens. It is, it is, it doesn't make a difference how, how you know, how far up in the sky I huck this thing. It's going to come back down. I, I could even take this thing and blast it into space. And still, it's under this thing, this law of gravity, the confines of gravity. I mean, at the very least, it's in the gravitational pull of the sun or, or the, the galaxy. You never escape it. It's like, it's constant, universal, absolute, and inescapable. No matter where I go on the planet, if I drop this pen, it's always going to fall, and we know that. It's an absolute rule. We are under the dominion of this thing we call the law of gravity. You can't escape it, and it applies to absolutely every human being and every piece of matter on earth, and even beyond earth. Now, I thought about that. I thought about that is, a, that is a, a, what we call a law by way of qualification. What we scientists call a, a natural law is nothing more than the faithful working of God's providence, as Christians believe. But it is an inescapable, universal, absolute truth. I thought about that and thought, you know, there are other laws that govern and dominate humanity and the world in which we live that are equally as universal, absolute, and inescapable. But these laws are tragic, and they were set in motion from the first rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. And those laws that are every bit as true and certain, maybe true is a wrong word to use for these, but certain as gravity itself. That is the law of sin, of separation, and death. Those three things. There is a law that governs all humanity, and it's called the law of sin. It is universal, it is inescapable, and it is absolute. Every single human being who has ever been born, except one, has been infected with this law, this truth. And it is the law of sin. And it's not just our guilt, it is the inclination to be self-centered or prideful or, 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 or sinful. That, 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 that's in every single human being. You know, when, you're, when your son or daughter's born, hello, happened again, gave birth to a sinner. And there is not a single place on planet Earth where a person does not live where that law does not apply. It's absolute, universal, and it is inescapable. Everybody is bound by this dominion called sin. Separation. Now, we have this inner sense, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, um, we have this sense that there's something out there and the sense that we're alone and we want something more. 
Romans 1 tells us that we have this innate understanding of God. He has placed it in us. It is a properly basic um, knowledge of our humanity. And an atheist actually has to deny that part in them to believe there is no God. It is fundamentally natural to our humanity to believe that there is a God. That's why we, we, we look for something else and why you look over the history of our planet. We have all these different religions popping up because there was this desire to somehow connect what has been separated. We just know there's separation there. We're not getting the full story. There's something out there. So we try to bridge the gap, but to no avail. We still feel the loneliness. We feel, still feel isolated and, and alone in the universe. That's the, the law of separation. And it's it also absolute. It is universal, and it is inescapable. And then there's death. Like, who can in this room actually argue that there is not the same kind of uh, law that governs gravity, gravity that is absolute, universal, and inescapable that does not uh, dominate our lives. No matter how much you work out, how much Mona V you drink, you're still going to die. Period. Game over. It is as, as certain, as inviolable, as constant and universal and absolute as gravity itself. Every time the pen's going to drop. Every time. And that is a world under the dominion of these three, if you want to call them laws, that enslave humanity. And they are inescapable. Any more than that, you, can, you can't ex uh, jump high enough to uh, liberate yourself from gravity. You cannot escape these things. We cannot escape them. And that serves as, as the proper backdrop for the wonder of heaven's answer to that problem, namely Jesus. When he came and he said, good news, the gospel of the kingdom, of a new reign, a new dominion has come. To displace that old dominion, actually break down those laws of bondage, of sin and separation and death. That's what he came to do. The kingdom of God is about displacing or overtaking those old fallen dominions and replacing them with life and liberty and a new connection with the Lord and taking away our sin and breaking that bondage, that's, that's, that's the gospel, the good news. And many of us in this room can remember a time when you experienced that truth. Maybe you were young, maybe you were old. And you realized that in the name of Jesus who gave his life for you and for your sin and based upon his resurrection, you're forgiven and you have hope and you have a future and you have life. And my, bet, my guess is, unless you just were grown up in the church and you have no conscious awareness of a change, my guess is that you look, can look at your life and say, there was a before and there was an after. This is what I used to be like. And then I, I heard the word of truth and I experienced liberation of the heart. It's called conversion or new birth. And my life changed. And that is evidence of the, 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 um, the power of Christ to break those laws. He alone breaks those laws of sin, separation, and death. Before and after. But one of the dangers that we face as Christian people is what you might call the danger of reversion. That is, you were awakened and a new life began, but there still is a pattern of an old world that you left behind. And the danger is for you to relapse or revert. The book of Hebrews largely deals with this issue. The text we're looking at this morning deals with this issue. Paul is concerned for the Ephesian people who live in a town where Aphrodite is worshipped, a place of sensuality, sexual promiscuity, and all kinds of stuff. He is worried about them or concerned that they revert back to the old way of life. And so he writes this section here in verse 17 through 24. 
The first part is a warning, and the second part is an encouragement as to how to make progress in this new life that we have. The warning part is first in verses 17 through 19. And Paul writes this. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now it says Gentiles, it's not talking about an ethnic category as much as it is a category of unbelief, of paganism and so forth. So you could re-paraphrase this, that you must no longer walk as the unbelieving world does in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In case you didn't uh, pick it up, that very first part of verse 17 uh, is supposed to communicate a solemn sense of warning. He says, now this I say, and not just say, but and I testify. What I'm about to say is really important for you. Not just in his time, but this is really important for our time at Parkway Community Church in our, our day, in our culture. This I say, and I testify in the Lord. This is, you have to sense a strong sense of weight and burden for the church in what he's about to say. And he reminds them in what follows of, of what the world is really like as a way of persuading them not to revert. And it's worth taking note of some of the things he draws out and the colors, which are rather drab and bleak, by which he, he paints the picture of the old world, the old way that people used to live in. One of the things that he draws out here, and you'll notice how many words have to do with the mind, like ignorance and futility of, of mind or darkened in understanding. One of the things he draws out is that in the believing world, when it comes right down to it, it's intellectually pointless. He says, in the futility of their minds. That's a person who does not believe in Christ. When it comes right down to it, their worldview is pointless. That is the way they view reality around them. And that word futility is the same word that, that is used by King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Over and over and over again. When he looks at the world around him and he does all his tests, he pursues pleasure, he pursues possessions, he pursues power, and he pursues wisdom. And at the end of the day, he recognized we all die. So what is the point? And so he says over and over and over again, and I can't help but think that Paul, when he used this word, was thinking about Ecclesiastes. Like, what's the point? If you live and you do all these things and you die, what, 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 real, what real point is there? And, and, and his conclusion is, well, if death is all there is, then there is no point. There simply is no point. We eat, we drink, we live, we die, and just like on Space Invaders back in the 80s, game over. It's done. Same with your kids. Eat, drink, live, die, game over. That's the same re repetition and cycle all the time. And when you plant something, eventually it's going to get uprooted. When you build something, eventually they're going to tear it down. So what's the point of life? If there is no Christ, it's pointless. It's like playing solitaire. You ever play solitaire? And this isn't to diminish those of you who love solitaire. I have it on my phone. But if you ever ask yourself the question, like, what, what, what really is the point? You sit by yourself. I got rid of all my cards. <laughs> now what are you going to do? 
Well, I'm going to play again. Oh, great. Sounds awesome. Use of time. Oh, man, I had three cards left. What are you going to do? Well, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm going to stick them back in the box. Game over. You know, like you realize that it's just like this pointless game to simply pass the time away with some little tiny sense of thrill in it. But at the end of the day, it's really pointless. If there is no Christ and there is no resurrection, all of life is pointless. If a person doesn't believe in Christ, I think to be true to their convictions, they should be a ra radical cynic and pessimist. What's the point? That's what he's saying. It's like, if there is no Christ, it's futile. Their, their, their minds are just dark. It doesn't make sense. Have you ever stopped to think that actually coming to faith in Christ is an enlightening situation? That one actually becomes more intellectually consistent and uh, aware? But that's still how he views it. To know Christ and the world of Christ and what Christ has done to do away with the old world and bring in a new world, it actually is quite enlightening to the mind. And it makes sense to, my, to me. Intellectual point, uh, pointlessness, uh, spiritual death. He says that they're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. They don't know him. Now, we think of life as, you know, living cells and a beating heart and neuroactivity in the brain, and that's life. That's, I suppose, a sort of existence. But in the Bible, true life is intrinsically relational and more to the point, relational in terms of our creator, God. The very essence of life itself that can be defined as or characterized by shalom and karit or peace and grace and love is only found as the creature is in union with the creator. That's what Jesus taught us, John chapter 17. He said, he said this is eternal life. That you know the one true God and Jesus Christ he said, to know God is to live. That's what he's saying. So not to know God, to be separated from, is actually to live this lifeless existence where joy is really sucked out. You're back to the pessimism. What's the point? And when that's the case, it leads to this kind of moral degradation and lack of satisfaction, which is where he goes in verse 19. Like, if, if the world at the end of the day does, is pointless... And if there's no life because you're separated from true life, which is God, then where are you going to look for it? In any and everything you can consume. And when that doesn't work, you're probably going to convert, or excuse me, not convert, pervert the things of the world so as to give you a sense of, of thrill or life, which is exactly what he says in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality. You see, this, what he says here is so true of America. I mean, callous, the word can also be translated, it just, they lose feeling. That's what a callous is, right? It loses feeling. The sin is, 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 is like Novocaine of the heart. It's like you, 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 you embrace it, you experience it, but somehow it leaves you more numb at the end. And it just doesn't satisfy. And so you go farther and deeper. And that's why it says, and when there's no feeling... What do they do? Well, they give themselves over. They give over their own humanity to the pursuit of things that feel like life, but leave them thirsty and starving. That's our world. Consume, consume, consume. Whether it's 
sex or money or shopping or whatever you want to call it, you can fill it with almost anything. The more it consumes, the more people starve. So here, Paul's reminding them, he's reminding us. So you want to revert, huh? Even think about going back to the old way of life. Let's just put, it, put things in perspective here. It's a pointless existence. There's no true joy because joy is found in union with God. And by the way, it's going to go downhill, and you're going to think you're going to experience pleasure, but you're not. The sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. That should be motivating for us to go, I don't want to go back. I don't want to live the old way. And that's the way our world lives. And I don't have to tell you that this is almost, uh, this is a rather accurate description of our time. But then he turns it around. He's going to give us the positive encouragement. He says, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That deceitful part is the over-promising, under-delivering. It's going to be good. You get there and realize it's not. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on this, the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He's, that first part, I, I love how Christ is the subject and object of, of learned, of heard, and taught. Like he's the great subject of the Christian life. Like Jewish kids and adults, they grow up studying and learning Torah. Torah, 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 Torah. Christians, the great subject of our study, of our analysis, of our inquiry, of our love and desire, of our uh, comprehension and apprehension is Christ. We learn Christ. In whom, and this is the part that thin-minded Christians have to have like blown out, you know, think Jesus is some kind of a small category. The apostles that I read and you read in your New Testament, they were utterly astounded with the magnificence and the immeasurable character and massiveness of Jesus. So that Paul could say in Ephesians 5, 8, or excuse me, 3, 8, he could see his job as preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable, immeasurable riches of Jesus. Like there's more than you can ever get your head or your heart around. It's the best thing in life. His death which freed me from sin and his life that frees me from death and his heart that shows me the heart of God and his mercy and his power, his humility, his love. Nothing better than that. That's, that's the Christian heart. That's, that's the new life. A new appetite for Christ where there is no hunger and thirst for Christ. Mark, my words, there is no new life. Christ, you, Christ, Christ, learn Christ. And then he goes on to talk about three ways in which that new life must be lived so that we will not revert. This is kind of the basics of, you might call sanctification or our growing up as Christians. A negative and two positives. The first here, he's, he says that you have to put off your old self. Put it off, or I've reworded it, to reject your former identity. Notice he says, put off in verse 22, and then he says, put on the new self in 24. It sounds like he's talking about tuxedo. Take off your old clothes, put on a tuxedo. That's because it's the terminology is often used of clothes. So you got to put off the person you used to be when you walked this direction. 
Now that's not a superficial thing. It's just because take, putting on taking off putting on clothes sounds superficial because it's it's not about the heart. But that's not the way he intends it. But if you see a person in white coat and a stethoscope, what do you identify them as? Doctor, at least from the movies. If you see a person with a black hat and black shirt and a badge, what do you think? Clown? No. Police officer. You see a person in a dark robe standing behind a, a huge judicial bench. You identify him as a judge. People, just like priests, priests were identified as priests as on the basis of what they wore. And that's even true in our society. We often identify people by what they wear. And that's the point. You used to have an old identity, who you used to be, who you used to, um, how you used to see yourself. And, and uh, Paul's saying, listen, that, that old person you used to be that you used to identify with, you've got to reject that. That is not you anymore. That's who you used to be. Don't see him as the real you anymore. Now, I've struggled with understanding how this works out practically in my psyche. How do I put off my old self? So can I give you my, I'm not, well, I'm going to give you my best. I'm not going to ask you if I can give you, I'm going to give you my best answer at that. That I believe what he's saying here when he talks about put off the old self, he's talking about um, remembering and rejecting the old person, sin-dominated person, as defeated by the cross of Jesus, and therefore powerless to control in an absolute way my life. How does that work out in terms of day-to-day living? This is a little bit of how it works out in my life. And if it works for you, it works. If it doesn't work for you, find something else. But I just picture the Allied forces, you know, moving across France and delivering France from the Nazis. And the moment that they pushed them out of French soil, that French soil became French again. And it's almost as if you could say, this is no longer Nazi territory. And I believe the territory of our heart, our soul, has been moved upon by the forces of God's Son. And he has planted his cross at the center of that piece of territory called Dan or Dave or whatever your name is, said, this is my territory. And I remember Christ has laid claim to my heart and he has put to death that old person. So he no longer exerts that ultimate influence in my life. Now Christ does by way of his cross. However, you and I both know that old person That old man still exerts his influence in our life, which is why we still screw up and why we still sin. How are we supposed to deal with it then? For one, we have to recognize that that's not the true me. It's kind of like the alien me that, that, that follows me around. But here's the thing. While we are to identify ourselves with the new person we are because of Jesus, we still are responsible for that evil twin that has been put to death by the cross. Which means when I do something that's hurtful to somebody, my wife or my children or one of you, I have to have the spiritual discernment to one, no, that's wrong. And that came from a bad place. It came from who I used to be. And to take ownership for it and say, listen, without justifying or defending that, because, because we, we are responsible for what he does. And just to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And... You know, God's growing my heart. 
that's how we that's how we handle that is when it does exert itself we have to take our stand against it not justify the moment we begin to justify well that's just who i am you have now made the old man part of your territory he has taken claim to a certain part of your heart you can't do that and that's the moment we begin to revert reject the former identity two he goes on in a positive way and says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds again he uses the mind word because truth comes in largely through the mind and then invades the heart and spirit. He's saying, be renewed constantly in your mind. Now, the word there is present tense, which in the original means typically that it's continual. In other words, the idea is to be continually renewed, refreshed, revived, restrengthened in the spirit of your mind. What does that mean? I think that's where you have to drop back to the context and realize the first part is you learned Christ, you were, you, you were here Christ, you were taught in Christ. And the way that we, pres we preserve and renew and revive that sense of identity of who I really am is to stay focused on Christ in all of his work, in all of his magnificence, and everything that his, his, his person and work has won for us. It just has to continue to wash over us. That's, that, that, that's how we renew our minds and our hearts. Which is why it's just over and over again, you just come back, you come back to, to Christ, you come back to the gospel. And you know what works itself out in other ways like that? Um, I forget which, which Israel trip it was, but we were there when there was all of these Jewish pilgrims. It might have been 2007 or 2012, I forget. But the, the Israelis do this really interesting thing. They sponsor Jewish students from around the world. At, at some level, they pay for it. I don't know how much. They pay for Jewish students, you know, from New York, from Los Angeles, and from Germany, if there's any left. And um, they pay for them to come to Israel. And they put them through this rather rigorous um, exposure to Jewish culture, to Jewish history, to archaeology, to the sense of what it means to be Jewish. They take them to this horrible but whew, necessary place called the Yad Vashem, or the Holocaust Museum right here in Jerusalem. And you see these Jewish boys and girls weeping as they're raking their way and standing over sheaves of people who are gassed, you know, and their gas chambers are Auschwitz and so forth. And this whole experience of being exposed to Jewishness of their heritage, it reinforces and forms in them an identity of what it means to be a Jew. In the same way that the constant exposure of going back and forth into the history of what God has done for us, who we are now as a people who have received the promises of Abraham, reinforced by worship and personal meditation, we, our souls are formed and forged into what it means to be and identify as a Christian. That's why constant exposure to the gospel is an absolute necessity to maintaining and renewing and reviving that sense of identity. You'll lose it otherwise. You'll forget who you are. And then... Lastly, the third positive is just, it's the opposite of embrace the new person that you are. See yourself as a believer, as a new creation who's in Christ. To see yourself as a saint because God has done everything necessary for you to be accepted and received and forgiven and to inherit your new creation. And that's who you are. That's, that's the real you that is coming about, that has been reborn, has been regenerated, has been converted, has been brought forth by the word of Christ. That's the, that's the new you that lives created 
after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There is a, a person that God brings to life. When we hear that word in power, it is beautiful. That bears the marks of God's character himself. Of peace and love, patience and gentleness. And that new piece of you is the real you. And it's coming into being. And we are growing into what he has already created us to be. That has been such a liberating truth for me. I'm not trying to become something different. I'm trying to become who I am. Being consistent with what God has created in me and what he created in you. Created past tense. This is who we already are and we're pursuing as a body and family of believers to be what God has created us to be, his family, his people. So here you have this strong warning. Don't revert. Do you really want to go back to the dark place of pointlessness, of separation, of chasing life and finding that you're chasing the wind? To recognize who you are and continually put that old man back in his place, his crucified. That Jesus has laid claim to the territory of your heart. To continue to renew yourself in a constant intake and submission to the gospel itself. And to remember and put on and maintain that sense of identity. I am the Lord's. Those are, th those are two, I think, parts of a very critical and crucial truth right here for us. Listen. What I, I'm about to say to you, I hope you hear this. It's personal to the Lord. I know that there are people in here this morning who have either reverted or are in the process. I know because I've been there before. And you are running this way and trying to run this way at the same time. You have a foot that is living like the Gentiles, and you have a foot that is living, trying to live, probably superficially and miserably as a Christian. And you're here this morning. This is personal word of Jesus Christ to you that I hope all of us in here will hear. You don't want to go back to the old life. You need to proceed with the new life. You cannot walk both directions. Your life can't look like the world and be Christian at the same time. If that's you, it's like this is the Lord lovingly telling you in the words of the Old Testament, choose whom you're going to serve. Serve Baal or serve Yahweh. You serve the world or you serve God. And I hope that this word and the spirit empowering this word will move you to move in one direction rather than the other. Because there is a powerful spell that has overtaken our land. Now, I, 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 I'm a student of the book of Revelation. I don't understand everything that it means. But when it comes to the content of the immorality of that great book, it is a picture of our time, of sensuality, of materialism, and the worship of man. And it is a spell. It's so easy as a believer in Christ to be taken in by the spell and start walking the right, wrong direction. You ever see, you know, Avengers? The Marvel comic made into a movie. One of my favorites. 
And there's a scene in there where Hawkeye, you know, the guy who's really good with the bow, and I'm jealous of him because I have two compound bows and I can't really shoot him very well. But I love Hawkeye, and there's this point where he gets taken captive by Loki. And he pushes this little scepter into his chest, and all of a sudden, you have Hawkeye becoming an evil pawn for the evil bad guy. There's no sense of Hawkeye in there anymore. And he's doing the bidding of an evil man, a villain. Until one of his, uh, you know, one of his fellow superheroes in a fight just clocks him in the head. Knocks some sense into him, quite literally. Smashes his head on a rail. And immediately he's like, what did I do? You know, I mean, there's a sense that he came to the realization the spell was broken. I hope that maybe this text for some will be that painful but redemptive knock in the head. You know, <laughs> you got to be who you are in Christ. Um, wake up. And for those who are continuing to grow, listen, those three things, just continue to reject that former identity and be renewed in your spirit constantly and know who you are in Christ. I hope the Lord is speaking to you now. Let me just close this in a, just a moment of silence and you can, um, you can talk to the Lord in response to this and then David will come and lead us.